Welcome to Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. Coming up today, we're going to revisit some of our favorite Studio 2 segments. We'll hear from chef and PBS host Lydia Bastianich. She has a new cookbook out. She wrote it with her daughter, and she's sharing delicious recipes with us. We're also going to talk about earworms, those pesky songs that get stuck in our heads. Oh, can drive you mad. First, though, Avi, you know Ken Jennings, right? Jeopardy champ and now host. We have some fans on our staff, and we were simply fascinated to learn that his new book isn't a collection of trivia. Instead, it's an exploration of what happens after death. It's titled 100 Places to See After You Die. A travel guide to the afterlife. Ken takes us on a tour of all the ways the afterlife has been conceived in religion, literature, movies, and television, from ancient Egyptian depictions of the underworld to Dante's Nine Circles of Hell to movies like Field of Dreams, Beetlejuice, and The Sixth Sense. He joined us to talk about these otherworldly places and his idea to write it as a guidebook. Well, the book was an accident. I was at a bookstore a few years ago, and I, they had a table full of those bucket list books that have a thousand of these to see and a thousand of those to see. But they always say before you die. And it occurred to me they were leaving half of the market out. You know, why should all travel books be about what happens before you die? You know, I grew up a Gen X kid and anybody my age will remember that was a time when America was really fascinated with the paranormal. So my childhood was full of mysteries about UFOs and Bigfoot and ghosts. And growing up as one of those kids interested in the unexplained, death and what comes after always seemed like the biggest mystery. It's just there on the other side. Everybody we know will go through it. Uh, If there's something there, they know right now, but we don't. Uh, I love that. I was always interested in that. Do you have an earliest childhood memory of someone sitting you down and telling you, hey, this is what happens after you die? Is there like a foundational moment for you entering into that that conversation in your mind? Well, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, I, you know, I would go to Sunday school as a kid, but I don't come from a particularly fire and brimstone kind of tradition like an evangelical kid uh, does. So I don't have the, the memories of a of a of a pastor or a nun scaring me with mm. the afterlife. Mm which I think is really formative for me because instead I was just fascinated by it. You know, it would be an episode of a sitcom where, you know, somebody went to an afterlife with a lot of dry ice on the floor, or it would be a movie with a guardian (laughs) angel gone awry, like it's a wonderful life, or it would be a twilight zone episode on rerunning on Sunday afternoon. You know, those were my glimpses of the afterlife. And I think that's why I'm just kind of delighted by the stories instead of traumatized by them. (laughs) Yeah, because death and the afterlife is such a heavy topic, especially in religious circles. I want you to kind of walk us through your process for curating this list of 100 destinations, because there's so many places and directions you can take this. Well, I wanted to keep it light. And so the idea of structuring it as a travel guide really appealed to me because there's a certain kind of voice in travel writing where you're telling people, well, here's the best places to eat if I go to the land of the dead from the Pixar movie Coco, or here are the nicest places to stay in Dante's Inferno, or, you know, here are the real off the beaten path highlights in a Hieronymus Bosch painting. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of walking the reader through the afterlife in a comforting way. And that's what a lot of our traditions have. There's often guardian angels and orientations in different versions of the afterlife. And so uh, the idea of the book is to provide some of that while while we're alive. And I just wanted to cast a really wide net. So there's afterlives from video games, songs, Broadway musicals, 
paintings, theme park rides, comic strips, comic books. You know, it's everything from from movies and TV all the way back to the oldest papyrus and scrolls. And you keep it light. But of course, when you read through it, you start having some heavy thoughts. And in particular, for me, I kept seeing the parallels or, or the threads that tied together different versions of the afterlife. Like, for instance, there seemed like there were a few different versions where, like, you go somewhere really nice, but you can't stay there forever because we know in our minds that it's going to get boring eventually. And then you go somewhere else and you don't know where that is. Like, I felt so many people struggling with the concept of eternity when you described these places in, in various faith traditions and in various pop cultural depictions. Did you have any of those dark thoughts yourself? A lot of the older religious traditions have some sense of a, a purgatory. You know, if you're an Eastern Orthodox, you actually ascend through the air and you suffer for a different sin as you rise until, you know, then at that point you're saved in heaven. But you're right. There's the other problem. Modern uh, depictions often include the discovery that, there's no way to depict a perfect heaven because yeah. perfection is is boring. And so you have there's a talking head song about what if heaven is boring. It's a plot element on the sitcom The Good Place. Um, for me, the darkest parts were some of the depictions of hell. There's a <laughs> there's an ancient Chinese version of hell where after all the physical tortures are described, the very worst one of all is you get to go up uh, and peek over a wall and see your hometown. And the torture is that you're seeing it now when you're gone and forgotten. Yeah. You're Everyone's moved on. You know, your spouse is remarried. Your kids have forgotten you. Your inheritance has been squandered. No one thinks or talks about you anymore. You know, the ultimate punishment was being forgotten. And yeah. the Chinese knew that 3,000 years ago. That, that's chilling to me. It was it was weird. And I remember the Chinese one uh, that you describe in the book. It's very bureaucratic, too, which was it's it seems a reflection of life. And so many of the paradises or the hells are reflections of you know, society at that moment. Right. The book is really stealth sociology because you see what a culture values, you know, yeah. even the very old paradises, you know, if, if heaven is just a place with no crop failures, you're like, wow, these people were just terrified of, of crop failures. And yeah. that shaped all their thinking. You know, that was what determined if their kids might get through the winter. Whereas with more modern ones, you see what our fears are. The 20th century has brought with it lots of bureaucratic heavens like the Chinese one, uh, where there's always kind of a fussy angel with a clipboard and somebody's going through files. There's a lot of clerks, you know, for comic effect, the idea that our, uh, uh, heaven might be as mechanized as mid-century America. Today, I see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of streaming shows that have the afterlife. They, they have a lot of boredom in them, just kind of existential angst. Some of them have worries about technology you know what if heaven is being uploaded to the cloud <laughs> right, uh, right worries about the gig economy you know people in heaven who still have to do terrible jobs like the tv show dead like me you know the afterlife is really just an extension of of what we think about the here and now did you find that religions or cultural phenomenon focus more on the darker side of the afterlife versus the the paradise side because it seemed like a lot of the stories talked about different versions of hell yeah the versions of hell are always way more um uh, painstakingly depicted you know a, a list of weird sins that will land you in hell for the chinese that was littering throwing pottery shards over your fence borrowing a book and not returning it in hinduism problems if you you know you flirt with your you flirt with your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law. That's a very specific punishment mm. in hell. And and I think the detail must be on some level. It's it's fear. You know, it's a, a system trying to keep people in line by saying, 
well, here's what happens if you if you throw pottery over the fence. But I think on another level, at some point it moves beyond that from the religious cast. It moves to artists and it's just more fun to depict hell than heaven. Hell and purgatory at least have some sense of uh, development. There's a comeuppance. I guess hell has all the blood and gore. Yeah. I, I grew up in the Jewish faith, Ken, and uh, I went to religious school for years and years and years. And granted, maybe I wasn't paying the best attention, but I had never heard of, I don't even know how to pronounce, Gehenna and Gan Eden, which are um, respectively the hell and heaven described by some Jewish scholars. And I was sort of thinking to myself, why have I never really heard of these things? Why are they not emphasized? Did you did you feel yourself trying to explain, perhaps to yourself, not so much the readers, but to yourself, why certain faiths opted for different types of heavens and hells and why they emphasize them to various degrees? Yeah, you know, I couldn't help but thinking a lot about that. I'm, I'm not a theologian or a professional religious scholar. I mean, notably, I'm a Gentile. From what I understand <laughs> in the Jewish tradition, from what I understand in the Jewish tradition is there's a lot of emphasis on the here and now. You yeah. know, how do we make our lives better now? You know, what's the right way to live before God now? But there are stories, you know, just a lot of them are medieval. You know, there's really nothing about Gehenna or Gan Eden in the Torah, but you know, a lot of these stories are medieval. They, they seem to accrete in religious traditions over the years, just just new layers, because people are so curious. People ask, people wonder, mystics have visions. And so you get these very detailed stories that are, were really never part of the, of the core religious faith at all, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I was raised Catholic and yet. Uh, my family, they constantly talk about, talk to your ancestors, your grandmother and great grandfather. They're there with you, clearing, fighting battles before you walk in a room. And I realized that that is based in some of the African traditions. And I never, it wasn't part of my organized religion. And as you did the research for this book, did you see a lot of mixing and matching as far as what is considered part of pop culture? Like in the films, they're taking a little bit from this religion a little bit from that culture and mixing it all together absolutely i mean a lot of the things that are generally believed about the christian heaven and hell for example don't come from the bible at all they come from john milton they come from Mm. paradise lost you know we think we have this idea of of who lucifer is and how he fell and what satan wants and the bible has almost nothing about that there's like two verses about lucifer everything else comes from a very long epic poem written 1600 years later these traditions accumulate over time and we don't always remember the origin. We just remember how they made us feel. And if you just tuned in, we are speaking with Ken Jennings, Jeopardy host, author of a brand new book, 100 Places to See After You Die. Ken, wondering where all this curiosity comes from, because, I mean, you're a very knowledgeable person, very successful Jeopardy contestant. Now you're host and you seem to know a lot of information Where did you get this original curiosity to learn so many things about so many different things? You know, I've thought about that a lot over the years after being on a game show, of all things, changed my life. And luckily, I've been able to meet other people like me, you know, those weird trivia kids who were always carrying around the Guinness Book of World Records and annoying their teachers and their parents and their (laughs) friends with with facts about polar bears and the biggest omelet ever. And I think the thing all those people have in common is we're very curious. Mm. And a lot of people are curious, but trivia people are omnivorous about their curiosity. Most people just tend to specialize like, well, yeah, I follow baseball, but not 
football or um, I really like jazz, but I don't follow pop. People tend to carve out niches, whereas for whatever reason, trivia people are curious about everything. You know, whatever the new thing is, it's like a shiny object. We're magpies and, and we'll go down that rabbit hole. And the, the great blessing there is that when you're interested in a thing, you don't have to try to remember all the facts. You know, the, the stuff you love just sticks in your head, the lyrics to the song you like or or the names of the of the players on the team you follow. You know, those things just stick without even trying to. So if you could unlock that interest in your head, mm. you would basically have a photographic memory. You'd remember everything. And I think trivia people are close to that. And I'm a believer in it. I think it's a great way to live. I want to bring in an email here from Frank, who, who says, uh, points out that we haven't talked about reincarnation mm. yet. What about reincarnation? Any insight on what's the best form to come back as? I suppose that's an opinion question for you, Ken. But I actually was surprised reincarnation appears in more traditions than I, I actually realized. And, and this book uh, enlightened me to that. So let's talk a little bit about reincarnation. And I suppose, what would you like to come back as? Yeah, a lot of modern afterlives have reincarnation because it's a convenient uh, plot point. It's, you know, yes. it's an ending. Your, your, your character gets reborn as, you know, if the Hindus believed you could be a clump of grass or a bug. Generally in, in fiction, somebody's coming back as a baby in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a tradition that you can actually choose your next life, that in the bardo, you can see different futures for yourselves kind of floating around you and, and gravitate towards the ones you like. Uh, you can actually see your parents in the act of conceiving you. That's wow. not something I would want to see, but the Tibetans believe that. Yeah, to me, that would be hell. But the, for the Tibetans, <laughs> that, was, that was the bardo. Um I don't know. I feel like I've been very happy and lucky in my current life. And maybe it, maybe it would be good for me to have some uh, good for my the empathy of my karma to to come back in a very different situation. You know, the other side of the world, not the privileges of being a white middle class American or, or maybe a golden retriever. I have a golden retriever <laughs> and she seems to have a very happy, easy life. So that would be nice, too. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated at your trajectory because you grew up loving uh, Jeopardy. You, you ended up writing quiz questions, editing quiz questions. How did you prepare like for a game? I, I know I'm, I'm fascinated with this Jeopardy situation just because I wonder how you prepared to be to a contestant, be a contestant yeah. and then how that differs from preparing to be a host. You know, I do feel very lucky. It was it's just such a bizarre thing that this was always my favorite show as a kid. And now you know, 40 years later, I'm, I'm still identified with the show. It's such a bizarre treat, but, uh, yeah, I mean, preparing for the show, you can't really cram for jeopardy. You know, the, the host could ask you anything. It, it could be the, you know, it could be about the Franco Prussian war. And then suddenly it's going to be about country music or doing anagrams in your head. You know, there's really not a lot of ways to prepare, but I did watch the show religiously. And I think that really helped. Um, you see, the kinds of things that Jeopardy asks about all the time. Oh, I, it seems like I should know all my world's capitals. I should know the presidents with their dates so I know what happened when. You know, you can see the patterns. But I also just got really used to the rhythms of, of Alex Trebek's voice. And that turned out to be really important. The Jeopardy buzzer is tricky and, and figuring out mm -hmm. the timing is tricky. And the funny thing is, you know, I was terrified when I was asked to guest host and later host the show. But it turned out to be the same preparation. I would just go back and watch tape of Alex because wow. he was so perfect for that job. And he had 38 years to perfect it. He, he just had an easy grace about him. And I realized, you know, if I just watch how he did it, 
Um, I'm never going to be him, but I can't go that far wrong. So it was really kind of the same preparation. Do you have a favorite moment from your time on the show or even your time as host now? The funny thing is, it's been 20 years, but nothing beats that first game. I was so terrified, and I see it now as a host. It's a very intense experience. They're really going through something up there. You know, they've got jitters at best. Sometimes they're 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 really kind of having an out of body experience. You're you're in a fugue state up there. The game moves so fast, and it's so everything's so unexpected. I knew that going in that it was going to be stressful, and I thought, you know what? I just don't want to be the person who's negative going into final jeopardy and gets booted early you know mm-hmm. i always felt bad for those people yeah. so my one dream was to not get kicked out before the during the third commercial and so when i unexpectedly won that first game i just remember this wave of uh like relief washing over me like you know what i'm a jeopardy champion now you know for the rest of my life and the funny thing is now you know even after winning 73 more times or winning a tournament or or being asked to host the show. You know, these are all remarkable honors, but but nothing's as good as the relief of, hey, I, I just won a game of my favorite show. This is amazing. That was Ken Jennings, <laughs> the Jeopardy host and the author of a new book, 100 Places to See After You Die, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife. Coming up next, why do songs get stuck in our heads eternally? Mm-hmm. A Princeton brain researcher will explain right after this. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back in to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman. And I'm Cherry Gregg. We often find ourselves with a song stuck in our heads. We call it an earworm, a tune that plays in a loop for hours on end, seemingly impossible to shake. Like that one, Waterloo by ABBA, sent in by our listener Julie and her music students. So we got curious, how do these tricky songs get stuck in the first place? I know someone who can answer that question, Cherry. Princeton University's Elizabeth Margulis. She has studied this phenomenon. She researches how the brain responds to music, why a few notes can have such a powerful emotional punch, and why we love to listen to music on repeat. We started out by asking her, what makes a good earworm? I'm thinking right now about the opening riff to Crazy Train by uh, Black Sabbath, because Patrick, a listener, sent that in as his Mm. earworm of the moment. So... Take a song like Crazy Train or any song, Elizabeth. What are the key elements of a song that sucks us in? Yeah. So, in in fact, a wide range, as you're probably seeing from the um, stuff you're getting in from your listeners, really a wide variety of things can get stuck in people's heads. And the more recently you've listened to the song and the more repeatedly you've listened to the song, the likelier it is to get stuck. So let's dig in a little bit on this whole idea of getting stuck. How does the brain take in music? So one of the things we know about even passive music listening, when you might be just, um, you know, doing the dishes and you've got something on the radio, 
is that if we look at what's happening in people's brains in that kind of moment, uh, even though they're not do making the music or singing or you know playing an electric guitar themselves, that the areas of the brain that uh, deal with planning motor movements come online. So there's this component of imagined participation, even when people aren't involved in making the music at all. So there's this kind of mental singing along uh, that you can end up uh, getting stuck on in particular kinds of circumstances. Are there certain types of chord progressions that our brain gloms onto, links up with sort of more naturally? There are certain types of melodies that appeal to us, you know, across cultures, across borders, or is it kind of random? Certain songs tend to be especially catchy when they use a melody or some kind of structure that is sufficiently familiar that you can make predictions about what's going to come next, mm. um, but then also involves some kind of little surprising twist. There's some kind of optimal mix between novelty and familiarity that tends to um, result in lots and lots of earworms. How many people are affected by this earworm phenomenon? Is like everybody, does it become a more serious, annoying thing in some more than others? Because for the most part, the earworms don't bother me too much. And they usually, I kind of forget about them over time. Yeah, that's consistent with what people say. So there've been a number of large scale surveys and what they've tended to find, number one, is that earworms are incredibly common. So more than 90% of people report that they've had one in the last week when asked, mm. and a, like a quarter of people say they get them every day. Um, and kind of one of the most surprising findings that's come out of that survey work is that most earworms actually seem to be fine with people. It's really only in special <laughs> circumstances that they become like extra annoying. Like maybe when there's a radio show that like plays who let the dogs out? I don't know. Uh, but generally, earworms out. are like. <laughs> there you go. See, you starting well, something, Elizabeth. I have found, at least for <laughs> sorry, me, that the ones sorry. that are the most annoying are the commercial jingles, which seem somehow like calibrated to stick in your head really quickly, but then get old really fast, too. Like, I'm thinking of Andrew who submitted the Whopper, 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 Burger King song. Whopper, Whopper, Junior, Double, Triple, Whopper, Impossible, or Bacon, Whopper. It does seem like there's a class of songs that are really good at burrowing in fast, but then getting tiresome fast, too. Is that a real phenomenon? It is a real phenomenon. In fact, for the longest time, before other areas of cognitive science got interested in what music could tell us, a lot of the research about catchiness was in business schools. Mm. So people that work or, or the people that work in marketing and stuff were like really interested in jingles and how you can use this knowledge to carry messages about whoppers to your unsuspecting listeners. You know, there is this really robust phenomenon that we've seen where when you play something for people repeatedly, even if it starts out not very likable, they tend to like it more and more across repetitions, but then there's a point where it's too much and they start liking it even less than they did in the beginning. I think about some of my favorite musical artists. And a lot of times when I first listen to an album, like I don't like it. And I'm like, I don't know why everybody loves it. But then I listen to it like two or three times. Then I'm like, I love it. I, I can hear why everybody loves it. Can you talk about why that familiarity sort of shifts your point of view? So if you hear something, you may immediately be repulsed, but then it becomes an earworm because you become familiar. Could you expand on that? 
uh, something that I use every year when I teach um, the cognitive science of music, I use this demonstration on the first day of class where I um, play students a uh, piano piece, just like a solo piano piece. And then I tell them I'm going to play them another recording by a different pianist of that same piece. And then I ask them to like, tell me everything about comparing the performances and which one they liked more and what have you. And then I, I, it's kind of mean because I do let them go on at length about their thoughts. And unbeknownst to the students, I'm just playing them the same recording twice. And uh, almost always they think the second one sounded just really different and like expressively mm. richer and like just so much more interesting and musical. So it's it's a really strong effect that um, hearing something a second time, you already have a framework for what you expect to happen in that piece. And that means you're tuning in now to different aspects of the sound. And it often allows you to kind of just get in there and have a more satisfying uh, experience. I want to bring in a caller here. Holly has a question for you, Elizabeth, about sad songs. Holly, you're on Studio Two. What's your question? Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, I had a question about, yes, sad songs. I love listening to sad songs sometimes. And why is it that some songs evoke like a strong melancholy mm. response when you first hear them? Like um, my example is Joni Mitchell's River. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. That song almost <laughs> like makes me cry. Holly. Yeah. yeah. Great question. So um, basically when we think about emotional responses to music, the picture gets pretty complex quickly because there are so many different mechanisms involved. So you can think about um, kinds of sounds that mimic what you might hear when a person's crying. Right. And so there's just this kind of link between how language is used and how music is used, that tends to be important. Um, but there's also a whole other layer where music ends up getting very strongly associated with memories in our lives, with the kind of visual imagery that it's been paired with um, in the past, such that later on you listen to a passage that sounds like something you heard before, and it kind of brings back that whole set of surrounding circumstances. And then what feels sad about the music is actually coming through this um, intermediate step of the scene that or, or the memory that you might be recalling. And I want to talk about a song that because I love to dance and there are certain songs that make me want to dance. And one is that I kind of grew up dancing on by one and only Whitney Houston from 1987. It's called I Want to Dance with Somebody. I, I want to play a little bit of that. I started grooving. Are there certain songs that is beyond an emotional response, but that you almost can't help but just tapping your fingers or snapping to or dancing to? And what type of songs evoke that type of movement? Absolutely. So in scientists tend to call that high groove music. So mm -hmm. music that tends to elicit movement, even when you're not asking for it and ha have shown that this is, the, the music that tends to make adults move is also the music that tends to make kids move. So there's a whole study where they just 
brought kids in and played them music that was either the kind that made adults move or or did not. And there's a really, really uh, intuitive response to songs like the one you just played that, you know, get kids uh, active and out there. I want to bring in an email from Matthew. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> Matthew blasts the stick song, Come Sail Away, you know, come sail away, come sail, until his son gets out of bed when his son sleeps in for too long. But then the song gets stuck in Matthew's, the dad's head, for the rest of the day. A little boomerang effect mm-hmm. there. Um, so uh, we have a couple mm-hmm. listeners as well, Vicky and then an anonymous listener who had some tips about how to get songs stuck out of your head. And they said if you have like a kind of like a baseline song that you use, like the girl from Ipanema or the long and winding road by the Beatles, if you sing that baseline song, it can drive the other song out. Is that true? And that would that help Matthew with his sticks dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my top recommendations, actually, is just to replace the earworm with a less annoying song. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that really works. It works. It does. Another odd um, solution that has been uh, supported by research actually is chewing gum because chewing gum disrupts some of the motor planning circuitry that uh, earworms depend on. If you just want to stop the sound altogether, like some bubba yubba or something might be the best strategy. (laughs) Some hubba bubba. I want to expand the conversation a little bit, Elizabeth, and talk about adding a visual element because music uh, is one part of it but then when you add the visuals how does that shift things absolutely so um lots of times nowadays we're listening um over headphones so we're really just getting the auditory part uh but even in those kinds of cases we tend to be supplying the missing visuals with um uh, imaginative responses so we see this in all kinds of Uh, research that when people are listening to music, they often are experiencing vivid visual imagery, vivid recollections of memories that happened in their own life, or imaginings of fictional kind of movie scenes that might accompany it. That's a really, really important widespread part of music listening. We are speaking with Princeton University professor Elizabeth Margulis about the science of music. A lot of you have been sending in your earworms, for instance, Mm -hmm. Nick has Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks stuck in their head. Christian, Afternoon Delight is rattling around right now. Um, Faith has wheels on the bus. That's an unfortunate one. Oh, boy. boy. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to ask about note groupings, chord groupings. I don't exactly know how to phrase this because, you know, you can tell I'm not a a music expert, but, but it seems to me like, for instance, like C, F, G, A minor, you play those in some order on repetition and it sounds like a melody. Do we know why those groupings seem to light up our brain and, and feel like a melody when we hear them? Well, here's the thing about repetition. Repetition is so powerful that not only does it work for repeating something like CFGA, like you're saying, but even you can take clips of speech that weren't intended to sound like song at all, replay those a number of times in a row, and then go back and play the original sentence that the words came from. And it sounds like at the moment that it starts the part you heard repeated, it sounds like a Disney movie where the person just busts into song. So there really is a tight link between repetition and perceived musicality. 
And we strung a few pieces of music together that have a little something in common. And I want you to take a listen. Can't touch this. Look, man, can't touch this. You better get a hype, boy, because you know you can't. You can't touch this. But here's my number. So call me maybe. It's hard to look right. And so, Elizabeth, when I hear these songs, just the simplicity, it seems like the music, the songs that had the simplest hooks or the simplest lyrics were the ones that I sang along to and the ones that I just could not forget. How important is this simplicity to creating an earworm? Yeah, earworms tend to work best when they're, they sit in a range that you can sing and when they're um, singable in general. So mm. think about things like having small steps rather than big leaps that are hard to hit. However, kind of what sounds simple to one person might not sound simple to another, depending on the music that they've listened to and the patterns that they've absorbed out of listening to that music. And that's part of how you can get situations where I'm having an earworm that's different from the one you're having. And that's just related to what kinds of patterns we're used to crunching. A few more earworms from our listeners. Uh, Steve is Call Me When You Land by Old Sea Brigade. Sheila, I Want to Be Rich by Callaway. I'm curious, Elizabeth, do you field calls from music executives and producers asking for like the secret code to how to make a hit song or an earworm? So normally in my field, actually, it goes the other way around where artists do really cool, interesting things. And then the scientists try to like, look at that and be like, oh, what can we understand about the human mind from kind of what works and what doesn't work? And I, you know, I just think that's part of the way art tends to work is that it's like ahead of the times and go out there and doing the novel stuff that everybody else tries to catch up with. The mystery and magic of music and Elizabeth Margulis at Princeton University gets to study it. How cool is that? And how cool that you joined us on Studio Two. Thanks so much for the time, Elizabeth. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, looking for dinner inspiration? Famed Italian chef Lydia Bastianic shares recipes from her new cookbook. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Cherry, I hope you've eaten lunch. Mm. I hope the listeners have filled up because the next segment is going to make an empty stomach growl. James Beard Award-winning chef and the host of the PBS cooking show Lydia's Kitchen, Lydia Bastianich, came by the studio just last month. That's because she has a new cookbook called Lydia's From Our Family Table to Yours. And she shared some recipes with us and some family stories. Avi, talking to her made us both want to get into the kitchen and do more cooking. But I'm not an expert Italian cook, so I started out by asking her what I need to start cooking the Italian comfort food she highlights in her book. Cherry, you need, the first thing that you need is confidence 
But Ooh. you can do it. All right? Get a good dose of that. Get <laughs> in my mind first, that, yes. That's a good set. <laughs> Pep talk, but, then, yeah. but then, you know, the, the, uh, because I, I profess Italian cuisine, so therefore the olive oil. Mm. Uh, you need all the spices, the peperoncino, the oregano, then the fresh herbs like the sage, the uh, rosemary. Uh, then, of course, you know, some of the, the canned goodies because the, people always think, oh, my God, you know, I have to go out and shop. But canned or jarred products like the olives, like mm. the capers, like the peperoncino, like the anchovies. These are all good uh, flavor-enhancing uh, ingredients. Uh, San Marzano tomatoes, peeled tomatoes, tomato paste, balsamic vinegar. These are all things that you can keep in your cupboard. Then you can go, of course, to the, the grated cheeses, the grana, the gorgonzola, the regular soft cheeses. So, you know, you can increase... But those first basic ingredients, they can be in your cupboard, and you can come home from work and make a great plate of pasta. Love mm. it. You mentioned this this book you describe as a love letter to your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so many of the recipes have family connections. You serve them with family. And I was curious, how does your family preserve recipes? Is it just sort of whisper down the lane, or is it note cards? How do you guys sort of share no, we get in the kitchen, you know. You just get I have, in the kitchen. I have, you know, certainly my mother was in the kitchen, but I go way back, you know. Uh, I came to the America as a 12-year-old immigrant, a young immigrant. I come from a part of Italy that is no longer Italy uh, on the northeast shores. So, you know, when communism, uh, World War II and all of that. So there I grew up with Grandma. And, you know, mm-hmm. Grandma actually, we had all the animals. We had chickens. We had ducks. We had rabbits. We had goats. I would milk the goats. You know, I would feed the rabbits. We had pigs. And so every every November, the slaughter made prosciutto, so made olive oil. So I was involved in all of that as a child. Not because there was a plan of Lydia being a chef, mm-hmm. just because that was the nature of it. And it continues. In an Italian family, the kitchen is the center. Usually, you know, you come next to grandma, then mother comes in, and you come and you work, you, whether you make the pasta, whether you make the gnocchi and whatever. Uh, I think it's fun for the kids. I think they enjoy it, but also they learn. And just being in the kitchen, the smells, the aromas, that all leaves an imprint in one's mind. Uh, it's like by osmosis almost, yeah, and just exactly. soaking up these recipes. Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, you change them a little bit as mm-hmm. you go along the way. There's a little bit of of, of change in recipes and family or addition. Uh, but, you know, uh, peanut butter and jelly. I never had it as a child. <laughs> yeah. But we love it. We, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And I have to, you have your grandmother featured throughout the book. I understand that food helps you remember. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Could you talk about a memory of your grandmother that's centered in food and just sort of what that cooking of that food does for you and to bring you closer to her? Right. Well, the book, the grandma in the book, that's my mother. Mm. And she passed two years ago. So the book is in her honor and the whole family and the recipes uh, are a reflection of that, a profile of us. My grandmother is the grandma that I just talked about mm-hmm. and that's, that was left behind when we escaped and migrated back into Italy from the communist Yugoslavia that was then. And when that happened, I was 10 years old and I didn't know because, you know, the border went down and we had some family left on the Italian side 
and we were on the Yugoslavian side. So we kind of, my mother, my brother, and I went to visit family in the Italian Trieste, is the city. My father was held back because they were afraid that the whole family would remain there. And he ultimately escaped about two weeks later, and we gathered. And, you know, when he came, then I realized that I wasn't going back because, you know, you didn't tell children yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of things. And I think along the line, you know, as in retrospect, as I think, why do I have this passion for food? Why do, does it mean the smells thing? And it's precisely what you what you said is that when I couldn't get back to my grandmother, cooking the food that I remember cooking with her, the smells that I remember brought her back with me. Even though I by now I was an immigrant in a refugee camp, cooking always brought my grandmother with me, whether it was the chicken with potatoes, whether it was the Sunday sauce that she made out of the chickens that we had running around the courtyard, the gnocchi that were served with that, the, the sage that went in there. All of this, I, they're vivid. I mean, I can talk about them because mm. they're all come back in my in my memory. And I think in in my kind of a, a progression evolution, coming as an immigrant in the United States and then ultimately getting into the food was precisely that trying to keep my 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 grandma, my heritage, those wonderful years as an infant that I had with nature and with uh, grandma and uh, lots of lots of love. Yeah, and then beautiful. there's a mix with some of the recipes that you became familiar with here, including Italian-American food that was not familiar to you Mm -hmm. from where you came from in that northeastern region of Italy. And you talk about beef rollatini in this book, Uh which was something you, I think you'd never heard of, right? And then you came here and you saw it in Italian-American cuisine. What was your impression of Italian-American food when you when you arrived, right. Well, what what I did find when I first came, and it was strange. This Italian American cuisine was quite different than what we cooked at home, but uh, I became intrigued by it. And uh, and in my career, actually, I really sort of researched into it. You know, when was this born? And it actually is a very venerable cuisine because uh, the big influx, the first big influx of Italian immigrants came at the end of the eighteen hundreds, and they came from three regions, from Sicily, from Calabria, and from Campania, which is Naples. That's all southern Italy. Exactly. Yeah. So the Italian-American cuisine reflects that those, those three regions very much. But can you imagine these immigrants coming here, remembering, having all those flavor memories that we just talked about, but not getting the ingredients, not having the ingredients? So they may do with what they found. And you know, the meat part, especially one of the one of the things that was interesting is that in Italy these people, these immigrants came because they needed a new life. They mm-hmm. needed food for their family and whatever, and meat was scarce. They came to America and meat was plentiful. Mm. So in that sauce went the bracciole, the meatballs, the sausages, pieces of of, of pork, not used in Italy. That's not the Sunday sauce as we know it in America. It's not known in Italy. And so in this book, I have some of those recipes that I pulled out that are, you know, people love. And we use it in our house now. That's beautiful. And I want to um, bring in a comment um, from Tim uh, talking about pasta. Tim says, I was raised using a spoon for pasta and heard you do not. 
Can you please remind the world again, no oil in the pasta water and don't snap it in half. We know who does it. I think I live with one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then those I have a quick follow-up to that. <laughs> cardinal rules, you know, don't crack that spaghetti. We like it long as Italians, you know. Uh, and we don't use a spoon to roll it up. A fork is enough. You kind of go in a corner, take a few strands, and twist that fork, and then bring it up and, and enjoy it. Yeah, there might be some strands hang, hanging, but we managed to get them in, in our mouth. So, uh, of course, no oil in the pasta water when you're cooking the pasta. I have been doing it wrong. And I will tell you this, Lydia, I in looking through your book, I'm not the best cook, but I can cook a few dishes. But your book was not intimidating mm -hmm. to me at all. It felt like very accessible, like I could do it, specifically the spicy, crispy cauliflower recipe. I felt like I could do that with the cheese and the, and the butter and all that. Um, I want to talk about accessibility. Is that one of the things you try to make happen on purpose or is it just that's the way your family cooks is that the recipes aren't hard, they aren't complicated, that anyone can do it? Well. Italian cuisine is straightforward and simple. It is mm -hmm. based on the ingredients. So the best ingredients, seasonal, whether it's produce or whatever, try to get the best and use local and ingredients. And elaborate it as little as possible. Now, when chefs have cookbooks or shows or whatever, I think that sometimes they feel like they need to show how much they know. Mm -hmm. In my case, that's not a necessity. I wanted to transmit my culture the, the cooking of my food, my uh, where I was born, to my adaptive culture. So it's like two families. I wanted to unite them through my food. And hopefully, you know, 25 years on, on PBS. Yes. Uh, it's, 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 uh, I've, I've been doing some of that with my books. So that's where I want to go. That is the reality of how people cook at home, how mothers cook at home in Italy. And that's the way. You should cook out here, uh, you know, when you and cook your hands are in the food. Like it, I was <laughs> like, there is no you just dig right in. You mix things with your hands. I love touching food. Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, it's the best tools you have in the kitchen. Let's put it that way. Your hands <laughs> are the best tool that you have in the kitchen. But, you know, the sensibility. My hands tell me about food things, you know, whether it's I can tell if amount, if the meat is really tougher or if the, the tomatoes are overripe. So I, I use those as sensors. Speaking of overripe tomatoes, we have an email from Joan. We always talk about how fresh ingredients make the dish, but what should you do when your garlic has a little green center or your tomatoes are overripe? Can you still make a decent dinner? Mm. Good question. I, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you don't want to waste food. So, uh, the garlic, the greens. So you pull it out. You 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 cut it out, and uh, uh, it's it's or even sometimes you have a little spot on on the garlic or on the onion. Cut that out. Use the rest of the vegetables or whatever. Tomatoes, ripe tomatoes. If they're ripe tomatoes, you know, a salad will become kind of mushy and all that. But make a sauce with it. so Or make even a, a soup, a nice tomato soup. Juice the tomatoes and whatever. Now we have all these gadgets. Uh, and uh, so, yes, absolutely use the vegetables or the produce or the fruit as much as you can. Discard what's not. You know, you, you look at it. If the whole thing is kind of moldy and all that, you throw it out. But if you can salvage, salvage it. I love that. Um, 
and you're a big fan of recycling food and I love to take something for dinner and make and add some eggs for breakfast. You got it. What are some good things that you repurpose? Leftovers. Anything. Oh. Well, it has, you know, vegetables have a great repurposing. You can make a pasta the next day with some a little bit of garlic, a little bit of oil. You chop up the vegetables that you have cooked and a little bit of the pasta water, maybe a little bit of butter, and it makes a great pasta sauce for the next day. You can make a risotto. Uh, stocks, of course, the, uh, and soups are always reusable. But even even meats, you know, like the tortellini and the agnolotti that we all love, those are usually leftover roasting meats from mm. Sunday. So, you know, on Sunday, if you have a mix uh, of roast, uh, uh, the chicken a little bit, maybe a little bit of veal and whatever, and all those pieces that were left with all those vegetables, like the onions and the yeah, carrots yeah. in there, you turn that into a stuffing for a tortellini, which we all love. As simple as that. But that's the, the Italian way is to find, uh, you know, the next day. And the question is, is it not to just reheat it, to make it into a new, new dish. New dish, yeah, yeah, repurpose, yeah. Repurpose. Frittata eggs are always a great sort of carrier mm -hmm. of, of this leftover stuff. I want to make sure we get in at least one more question from our audience. This is from Rob. Can you talk about different types of olive oil, cooking oil, versus something you'd want to use on a raw tomato and eat? Uh, oil, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum of oil. The vegetable oils, whether it's canola uh, or, or corn oil or vegetable oils, are good in the high temperature zone. So if you're frying mm -hmm. and uh, because they have a higher smoking point. Uh, the uh, olive oil has a lower smoking point. It, it smokes. What smoking point really means is that when you raise it to a certain uh, temperature, the, the, the molecules uh, bind the ions really and makes it harder for you to digest. It raises the temperature, yes. It fries better, yes. But the digestion part you should leave for the olive oil because the olive oil is more nutritionally sound and you don't bring it to high temperature. So the olive oil, uh, what I do is like, let's say you're doing a chicken dish. I brown it in vegetable oil, get sort of discard that. Then when I make the sauce with the chicken, I introduce olive oil, and that remains in there, and that's what one ingests. Our oh, final tip education. for the hour. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lydia, for being with us on Studio Two. My pleasure. Lydia Bastianich's new cookbook is Lydia's, From Our Family Table to Yours. And you can watch Lydia's Kitchen on WHYY TV 12, Saturdays at 3.30. That is it for our show today. For more, head on over to whyy.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Tina Calake is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager from Studio 2. At WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Erich. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us.